David has had a legendary career in Silicon Valley. He was CEO at PayPal back in 99, alongside folks like Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, Reid Hoffman, and others. He was the founder and CEO of Yammer, which was a really early collaboration enterprise tool, which was really a predecessor to Slack that sold to Microsoft for 1.2 billion in 2014. He's currently the co-founder and managing partner of Craft Ventures, an early stage venture capital firm. And over time, he's invested in some really iconic companies like Airbnb, Palantir, SpaceX, Uber, Affirm, the list goes on. So, you know, one of the best investors of all time in Silicon Valley. He has awesome insights on Twitter at David Sachs. And he's also obviously one of the besties. Am I allowed to say that from the All In podcast? So, so a quick welcome for David. Thank you, Elon. Thanks for having me. Can everyone hear me okay? Okay, great. So yeah, well, let's start, we'll go through these slides and then I'll be happy to take your questions and, and Elon's questions. This presentation is called Surviving a Downturn. I'm not from the future, but I've been around for a long time. So maybe I'm from the past and come with me if you want to live. So hopefully we'll give you some advice on how to survive a downturn. Next. I just want to start by explaining why we're in the situation we're in, in terms of the sort of macro economy. This slide here shows you the relationship between interest rates, the Fed funds rate, which is the interest rate that the Fed sets, and inflation, which is measured by CPI. And the red line is inflation and the blue line is interest rates. What you'll see is that the lines track each other really closely because the Fed responds to inflation by raising interest rates. And that's the way it controls inflation. So if you look here at the very end of the, of the chart, you'll see right over here that the red line, the inflation line has spiked out of control. It's basically gone to 8% over the last year from, you know, from nothing. And meanwhile, the Fed's funds rate has been all the way down here. So these two things have moved violently out of sync with each other. And so what that does is it implies the Fed is going to need to raise interest rates substantially to control inflation. Next slide. And the problem with that is that stocks move in the opposite direction as interest rates because the net present value of earnings and revenue that companies generate in the future gets discounted to the present based on an interest rate. And the higher that rate, the higher the discount. And so growth stocks in particular, any security that's long data that's in the future gets discounted to the present more highly. And this is most true for what we do because we're still creating companies that may not generate any profits for, you know, decades. So this is a slide here showing the, the relationship between the S&P 500, for example, and the 10-year treasury yield. You can see they just move in opposite directions. So next. So as a result of that, basically there's been a huge stock market correction in the last six months. And if you were just looking at the indices like the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones or even the NASDAQ, you would see something like 15 to 25% decreases. It would be a bear market, but you wouldn't realize like just how bad it's been. If you actually look at the stock prices of gross stocks, they're down 60, 70, 80, 90%. It's the biggest correction in gross stocks since the dot-com crash. What this chart shows you is the correction in SaaS, which is the area that I invest in specifically. And what you can see here is, I know these lines are kind of hard to see, but this green line here shows you the, the multiple associated with high gross public SaaS companies. This is the multiple is the enterprise value divided by next 12 months revenue or ARR. And you can see that over the last couple of years, that multiple went up as high as 35 times. Now it's all the way down to eight. And if you look at, that's for a high growth public SaaS company growing, say 40% year over year. If you look at the average SaaS company, which is growing about 20% year over year, that line basically shows that the multiple got to 15 over the past couple of years. Now it's all the way down to 5.6. Now, what happened over the past couple of years? Well, in response to COVID, the Fed and Congress printed $10 trillion. They flooded the zone with money and they reduce interest rates to practically zero. So all of us, the stock market, but really all of us were kind of gaslit by the Fed into thinking we'd have low interest rates forever. And now all of a sudden inflation has reared its head because of all that money printing. And so the Fed is moving aggressively in the other direction, raise rates, control inflation, and that's caused a massive reset 
in the stock market. Now, a lot of people are asking, well, are things going to bounce back? Well, in a way, they did bounce back. They bounced back to the historical mean. In other words, what you're seeing today, as painful as it is, is not the historical anomaly. The historical anomaly was this two-year period during COVID when they printed money like crazy. If you go back just five years, multiples look just like they do today. So the anomalous period was the last couple of years. And what we're seeing today is more like the historical mean. So this is why I wouldn't expect there to be some quick bounce back. The bounce back or the reversion to the mean has already occurred. Okay, next slide. So a couple of, of tweets here that I think, you know, start to show the implications for all of us in startup land. So Matt Turk had a good tweet here to, to, to put the depth of the reset in context just justify a billion dollar valuation. This is now based on the 5.6 times multiple that we're seeing in the public markets instead of 15 times like six months ago. To justify a $1 billion valuation, a cloud unicorn today would need to plan on doing $178 million in revenue in the next 12 months. So just think about that. A, to justify a $1 billion unicorn valuation, the median, if you're growing at the median, which is 20%, you'd have to be doing 178 million in revenue. So you compare that to how many companies were getting unicorn valuations based on, you know, 1 million, 5 million, even $10 million in revenue, and you realize how far off the mark they were. And Jason Lemkin tweeted, if nothing else, expect a fraction of the new SaaS unicorns we saw in 2021. With so many amazing public SaaS companies now worth just 2 billion, you really, really gotta be epic to be worth 1 billion. So all of us, I think, got a little bit gaslit on how easy it is to create a unicorn by the fact that we had money being flooded into the system and everyone was throwing money at everything. The standards are going to get a lot tighter now. Next slide. Now, there's a lot of people who say, well, okay, that's true for the public markets, but in the private market land, VCs are still flush with cash. They've raised giant funds. Didn't Tiger, for example, just raise a new $12 billion fund? So it's gonna still be easy for us to raise money. Well, here's the problem. Tiger did raise a $12 billion fund. They just announced it in March. Guess what? It's already gone. It's gone. It's deployed. They deployed it in six months. So that tells you something about how fast VCs have been deploying money. Yes, a lot of VC funds were raised over the last year or two, but they were deployed at unprecedented speeds because again, everyone was betting on this zero interest rate environment persisting forever. And they thought, wow, these startups are a bargain because when I look at the public comps, these startups are so cheap compared to public valuations. Well, guess what? The public valuations is corrected 80%. So there's gonna be a lot of VCs out there. They've already deployed their funds and they may not be able to raise a new one. Or if they have raised a new one, they're gonna be deploying it a lot more slowly. If a VC deploys their fund over three years instead of one year, that means a two thirds reduction in the amount of startup capital that's available over the next year. And that's what you should basically expect. Next. We already start to see this in Q1. The VC funding dropped 20%, and it wasn't just in later stage. It is already trickling down into Series A. But Q1 was still a relatively healthy environment. There were some warning signs. The stock market was on its way down, but you didn't have the all sort of the all out collapse that we saw in April and May. So, and there are a lot of people who were sort of believing it was, this is just a temporary blip, right? But now we know it's not a blip because the public markets have corrected even more in April and May. So you should expect when the numbers come out in Q2, you're gonna see even bigger drops in the number of deals that get funded. And I would expect Q3 to be even worse. Next. So, this is where I was saying, I would expect VC or Q2 to be worse. Again, VCs take their cues from the public comps. Liquidity has really dried up. And there's a lot of VC firms right now that are just kind of frozen in their approach. They're taking a wait and see attitude to where price levels are going to land. Next. Now, it's very hard to know the future. I don't try to predict exactly what's going to happen. I think the way for all of you to think about the future is in terms of scenarios. You don't bet on like, it's one thing that's gonna happen. It's look, there's maybe three possibilities and then you assign percentages to those things. So 
you know, we've kind of seen this movie before. I think there's three possibilities. One would be a downturn, which would maybe last, say, six months. That's kind of what we saw with the COVID crash in Q2 of 2020. It was a short, severe drop with a quick kind of V-shaped bounce back. So that's one possibility. And, you know, there are smart people who believe that this is what we're going to see. I think this is Jason Lemkin's view. He's tweeted this, that he thinks that by the end of the year, VC markets will be, you know, pretty much unfrozen. The valuations may not be back where they were, but things will be sort of back to normal. Okay, so that's one view. Another view would be, no, we're headed for a recession. I think there's a lot of recession warning signs out there. And the typical recession lasts about 18 months. So it's going to be more like that. And if you go, the last one we had that was like that was 2008, 2009. And the VC markets, again, taking their cues from the public markets is a very tough environment for about 18 months. And then the third possibility, what I call nuclear winter, is we get something worse than that, like the dot-com crash, where literally you couldn't raise money from 2000 to 2003. I was doing PayPal during that time, and we did manage to raise money, but none of it from Silicon Valley. We turned over rocks all over the world, fundraising in many, many countries everywhere but Silicon Valley, and that would be like the nuclear winter. Now, am I saying that's what's going to happen? No, I'm saying you should assign probabilities to these things. Let's say one-third, 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 okay? Now, I don't think nuclear winter happens without more shoes to drop. For example, right now, consumer credit is at all-time highs. Credit card debt by consumers, all-time highs. The housing prices compared to median income is at the same levels that it was before the real estate crash in 2007. So, you know, there are, you've got the war in Ukraine still going on. We don't know what could happen there. So something really bad would have to happen from here to get the nuclear winter scenario. But again, more shoes could drop. So what I would say is just think in terms of one third, one third, one third. And what you want is I think to have at least a two thirds chance of survival meaning at least make sure you're covered for the next, you know, 18 months. Very hard to survive a nuclear winter. Maybe you can't totally plan for that, but you at least want to plan for a downturn or a recession, be able to survive that if you can. All right, next slide. In terms of, you know, we've seen this movie before, you know, what, what could this be like? Well, Elon, I think we'll remember this. Were you, were you around in 2000 or, oh, you did, okay. So back in 2000 or 2001, there was a site, a website called fuckcompany.com. And all it did was track layoffs and companies going out of business. And every day there were new, new entries and it just felt like for two years, companies ran out of money and died. It was really pretty sad. So that's what can happen during a nuclear winter. Now, again, I'm not saying it's gonna happen, but if you've never seen this movie before, then it's just good to understand how suddenly and violently things can change in capital markets. In 1989, we had the biggest boom ever. And in 2000, money just wasn't available. And again, any company that hadn't closed its funding round just ran out of money and died. Next. So in terms of like how you should think about, you know, persevering through this period, I think there's a couple of different standards you could think about. There's the, the YC standard, and there's a standard that I've, I've tried to introduce. So the YC standard is called default alive. And the definition of default alive is assuming expenses remain constant and your revenue growth continues as it has over say the last several months, do you become cash flow positive on the money you have left? Okay. So that is, if you can be default alive, that is an absolutely wonderful thing. And I wouldn't discourage anyone from doing it. But in my experience, that's an almost impossible standard for an early stage startup. Why? Because you got to burn money to even get to the point where you're generating revenue, never mind getting to the point of being cash flow positive. So the standard that I would suggest if you're early stage is what I call default investable, which is, are your metrics good enough to raise another round in the current environment? And so the question there is, you've got to be realistic. What is investable? And you have to be very realistic about what that is. And it helps to talk to VCs to ask them, you know, not even in the context of your own company, but just what is it that you're investing in? What, what were their metrics? So you have a really realistic appreciation of what it takes to get funded. Now, if you're a later stage startup, default alive is really what you should go for. 
But I think if you're early stage, you should be going for default investable. Both standards have their risks. I think the main risk with default alive is that your revenue underperforms plan. For example, because we go into a recession, the main risk of using default investable is that the VCs change their standards, which absolutely can happen. Or frank, frankly, that founders can be a little bit unrealistic. You've got to, you can't delude yourself about where the bar is. Okay, next slide. So here, here are some metrics that we would tell you. So if you ask me, David, what do you consider a default investable? What are you investing in? This is the, this, these are the, this is the bar that I would give you for SaaS companies. And there are other bars for other kinds of companies, but for SaaS companies, this is what we look at, right? So we would consider great metrics or best in class to be 3X year-over-year -year growth in ARR. We wanna see gross margins of 70%. We wanna see net dollar retention of 140%. Again, that's best in class. CAC payback of say six to 12 months, under 12 months. I wanna see a burn multiple of one or less. And if you wanna know what burn multiple is, go check out my blog on, on that topic. It basically means a burn multiple of one means that your burn equals your net new ARR in a given period. Now, what good performance would mean is two and a half X growth year over year, 50% gross margins, 120% net dollar retention, 12 to 18 month CAC payback and a burn multiple of one to 1.5. If you have say three or four great metrics and one or two good ones, speaking for our firm, I think we'd invest in you in a, let's say series A or series B round. So that is the bar for default investable. Now, there are some danger zone metrics where if you have a metric that's under these, sort of under this, this threshold, then you could have a real problem because VCs in a downturn like this won't just look at growth. In a boom market, all they look at is growth. But in a down market, they start getting a little bit more, they start probing a little more deeply about other kinds of metrics. And if you have growth less than, less than doubling year over year, if your gross margins are negative or even under 20%, that's probably fatal in this environment. Nobody wants to fund a business that's selling dollars for 90 cents. Net dollar retention under 100%, that's a leaky bucket. That's a big, big problem. You got to fix that right away. If it's costing you two, if CAC payback is over two years, that's probably, your growth is probably too inefficient. And if your burn multiple is over two, meaning you're burning, say, $10 million to acquire 5 million of net new ARR, people are going to have a problem funding that model in this environment. So if you have danger zone metrics, you need to focus like a laser on fixing those right away because those are disqualifying for funding in the new environment. All right, next slide. So to summarize this quickly, there are four states of what I would consider to be okay in, in this sort of downturn. Number one, cash flow positive. Okay, always good. You're cash flow positive. You don't need money from VCs anymore. You control your own destiny. Wonderful place to be if you can be there. Number two, default alive. You can get cash flow positive with the current amount of money you have in the bank. Also fantastic. Third, default investable. You've got superb metrics that VCs are willing to finance. That's fine. Great. Awesome. And then four, so where are you otherwise? I think in this environment, number four is lean startup. Okay. You have low burn, long runway, and you're iterating to product market fit, or you're iterating to fix those danger zone metrics that I identified on the previous slide. There is nothing else. Everything else is a no man's land. If you are a you know, fat startup in this environment, no one's going to fund you. You're going to run out of money and die. So if you don't have the metrics to be one through three, slash your burn immediately so you have the time to give yourself the chance to get to those metrics because fixing problems in your business takes time. You know, you're not going to do it in six months. You know, if you've got a leaky bucket, if you've got a negative gross margins, if you've got a CAC payback problem, that's not something you can fix in six months, typically. Sometimes you need two years. So give yourself the time. All right, next. You have agency. Take action now. You know, if you can top off your previous funding round, even if it's that evaluation you don't like, great idea to do that. Adjust now to give yourself runway. We recommend 30 months. The reason is this. When people say you need two, month, two years of runway, what you have to remember is that doesn't really give you two years because you can't raise, you can't go out and fundraise at the end of the two years. You should probably go out and fundraise six to nine months before you run out of money. 
So if you only have two years of runway, what that means is you only have five quarters to move your business. And if you're not default investable, five quarters may not be enough time to fix those variables. So we like two and a half years so that you have two full years to fix your business before going out to fundraise. Simplest way to, to do that, to reduce your burn, trim your sales and marketing spend. Don't spend a dime on any marketing that doesn't have immediately measurable ROI. And then freeze headcount, cut headcount. Again, make yourself lean enough to give yourself the time. And by the way, lean teams are better at fixing problems anyway. Like, you know, big, you know, heavy startups with lots of people, very hard to turn that ship. Sometimes you're better off bringing things down to that lean startup that you were in a previous round so that you can fix problems as opposed to trying to maintain a model that you grew to that doesn't really make any sense anymore. And act fast because the sooner you act, the more time you're going to give yourself on the other side. Next. Common mistakes. So these are all the responses I hear on Twitter right now. The market will bounce back. We, we covered that one. It did bounce back. It bounced back to historical mean. It's not going back to zero interest rates. Dithering. We'll take action in six months. You usually hear this one preceded by an if-then statement. If the following, you know, bad thing happens or if, if the following amazingly good thing doesn't happen to us in the next six months, then we'll take action. You know, that's what sort of wishful thinking, you probably, you know, don't want to delay, probably should act sooner rather than later. Squeamishness. Okay, we hear you, David, we'll make some cuts, we'll cut 10%. 10% probably a rounding error in this environment. If you're going to cut, think from first principles, how big should your startup really be? And then work back from that number, not from based on some bloated burn number you got to in a completely different economic environment. Don't get trapped in a sunk cost. You'll hear, well, wait, cutting now would be so disruptive. Well, cutting now is the best time to, you could ever cut because every other company is doing it. So like, frankly, you know, when you're in a boom and your company has layoffs, everyone's like, oh my God, you're get, this company is no good anymore. It's gonna die. Now it's like everyone's doing it. So actually it's the perfect time to cut. And then, you know, the last one I hear a lot on Twitter is that, well, you VCs, you should have been more disciplined in, in your investing if you wanted us to be more disciplined in the way that we operate. Like, why, why are you VCs lecturing us to be more disciplined? Why were you more disciplined than the companies you were investing in? It's like, okay, good point. There were a lot of undisciplined VCs out there. That's not going to save your ass when you run out of money. They're not going to invest. So look, this is not a blame game between VCs and operators. This is advice so that operators can make the best decisions so you survive. And if you're like me, the only thing you care about is that your portfolio companies survive. So the advice I'm giving is purely so that founders are in the best position to survive. It's not about blame. All right, next. The good news. Some of the most iconic companies in the history of Silicon Valley were founded during recessions or primarily grew. Like I mentioned, PayPal, we, we were founded in 1999, which was the year before the dot-com crash, but virtually the whole business was built in the wake of the dot-com crash, which was even more severe than what we're going through now. Google, same thing. Amazon, Salesforce, Airbnb, Stripe, all founded during downturns. All these companies were founded in the Great Recession of 2008, 2009. So in a recession, here's the good news. Everything gets easier, actually, except for fundraising. There are way fewer competitors getting funded. So you don't have like all these copycats, you know, biting at your heels. That doesn't force you into doing weird, unnatural things in the business. Remember when Uber and Lyft were basically competing on the basis of who could give away more money to their drivers? You know, that was all a function of like too much money being in the ecosystem. You won't have weird dynamics like that during a downturn. It's easier to hire, you know, the competition to hire engineers like settles down. So. Everything will get easier about growing your business. The amount of noise and distraction will go down. The only thing that gets harder is fundraising. So give yourself the opportunity to course correct. Put yourself in the best position for fundraising. Just focus on the fundamentals of your business and, you know, the world will keep spinning and you'll do fine. So let me stop there and take, take questions. I think that was the last slide, right? Yeah. Yep. Great. So, yeah. So maybe what we'll do first is ask a couple questions and then we can open up to the audience if there's sufficient time. Right. So 
So thanks for that. That was really helpful background in terms of setting the stage for what's going on. Do you think the shift in valuations and in capital availability has cascaded all the way to the early stages? I know that it's definitely adjusted in the growth side, but do you think seeds, Series A's, et cetera, have, have come down? Yeah, so I think they already have come down and we may see them come down even more. So here's how things kind of trickle down is first, you start with the public comps, the public companies. And the whole reason why the, the, the VC space got flooded with so much money over the last couple of years is you had hedge funds like Tiger, like O2, like D1. They looked at the public comps and they looked at the last private round. They're like, hey, there's an arbitrage here. The guys, you know, the, the, uh, the late stage VCs are making all this money. What seems to be like an almost risk-free investment. They're making five, 10 times their money by investing in the last private round or the second last private round compared. So they all came in en masse to arb out that, that difference. And now the problem is, well, the public comps just went down 80%. So they've just left the ecosystem. So now growth rounds, the valuations have plummeted. Well, all the series A, B, C's know that their next round is a growth round. And they look at the new valuation levels. They're like, well, we can't pay as much. We just can't. So, you know, if, so, so yes, the short answer is it's all coming down or in the process of coming down very, very quickly. These things have to equilibrate. And the way it generally works is that there's a graduation rate from C to series A and from series A to series B and so forth. And a VC cannot pay more than what the next round is going to be times the expected graduation rate. So everybody is kind of resetting right now. And where do you think multiples are kind of going to flatten out? Do you think, because in, in public markets right now, a lot of things are, you know, coming down to 8x, 10x, next 12 months revenue, things like that. If you look at sort of earlier stage companies, series A, series B, what sort of multiples do you think are going to be applied six months from now, 12 months from now? So I, I think the best way to answer that question is to ask, what was the world like before COVID? Because I think what's happening now is this, this great reset is bringing things back to the, call it five-year mean pre-COVID. That's what's happening in the public markets. I would expect the same thing to happen here in VC land. So what were things like five years ago? That's the question to ask. And I mean, I can, I kind of remember, you know, remember what it was like. And, you know, to do a series A, you had to have a million of ARR as, you know, as a, as a company, and you would maybe raise a $10 million series A at a 40 million dollar free money valuation. I mean, it would be 20 to 25% dilution for say 10 million bucks. That was sort of the deal. And last year, those deals went for 80 million plus, you know, sometimes there are crazy numbers. Well, that's just not going to happen. I mean, I just don't think that's, that's in the cards now. Series B was typically a $5 million of ARR. And, you know, those rounds would go at, I mean, hundred to $200 million valuation. I mean, so, so look, I don't know exactly where things are going to reset, but they're going to look a lot more like five years ago than one year ago. That's the thing to keep in mind. Now, if I were to reverse engineer valuations from the public comps, just remember that, you know, right now you can invest in a fast growing company, SaaS company, like a snowflake growing, say 40% year over year at true scale, you know, dominant in this category, top notch CEO, billions of dollars of revenue. You can buy that company for eight times ARR, eight. So, you know, this, the days of hundred times ARR, 200 times ARR, like those deals just don't make any sense, you know, because you're kind of competing in a way with Snowflake. Now, if you're tripling year over year, does 20 times ARR make sense? Yeah, 30 times. I could see that because a year from now, if you're three times bigger then you know, 30 times becomes 10 times. And that actually kind of makes sense. So, but again, you know, hundred times ARR, that was a historical anomaly in the second half of 2021. So I would not expect those valuations to return anytime soon. And look, I'm not, one thing I should clarify, I'm not talking my book here. A lot of people say, well, David, you're just want valuations to be low because you're a VC. Look, I'm a price taker. You know, the market sets the price. I'm just predicting where the prices will be. And if the prices end up being higher, that's what we'll pay too. But I predict they're not going to come back to hundred times. So if you're a company that in some sense had too high of a valuation relative to today's market. So, you know, six months ago, it made a lot of sense to raise at, you know, a few hundred million dollars if you had half a million dollars of revenue. But now obviously that's going to shift pretty dramatically. Right. What should you do as a company? Should you wait and see how far you can get? Should you reset valuation now and do a down round? Should you do a structured round? How should you think about, right. you know, the scenario that you're in? Well, so, so one really good thing about being a private company compared to a public company is that if you're a, a private company growing 3x year over year, 
and let's say that valuation levels drop 70% as they have, you can actually grow into your last year's valuation with this one triple up with one year's growth. Whereas if you're a public company growing at the average is just 20% and you've come down 70%, it's gonna take you like a decade plus to grow into your old high water mark. So those public companies are, you know, they're kind of screwed, but private companies that are growing fast actually can grow into their valuations. And that's why I've recommended, we have a bunch of portfolio companies who raised last year and, you know, some of them raised it hundred times ARR and they raised a lot of money. And so my advice to them is great. You took advantage of the environment. You raised a lot of money. That is fantastic. Just don't plan on going out and raising in nine to 12 months like you did last year. Make that money last like three years because the first 12 to 18 months or the, from when you raise probably is just growing into last year's valuation. But if you can then grow another year on top of that, then you can get an up round, right? So, you know, we invested in a company. I won't say the name, but it's in my head that, you know, we paid a hundred times ARR a year ago. And it was a company we really wanted to invest in, fantastic founders, great, but well, a year later, they're at more than triple where they were. So now it's only 30 times. So I think if this company went out today to raise, they would get last year's valuation because they've grown into it. Wouldn't be an up round, but they, now they don't need to raise for another two years. So by next year, they'll be able to get an up round if they want it. So that's the kind of like math you can be doing in your head. It's just conserve your cash, lengthen your runway, be frugal, you know, money was so plentiful last year. People took it for granted. Don't take it for granted. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people say that a flat round is the new 2x <laughs> in terms of valuations. So well, the flat round is almost like a 3x, right? Because if valuation levels have gone down 70% and you get a flat round, it means that you've tripled your ARR. So, yeah. And then from a cash management perspective, do you have any tactical tips for founders? Obviously, you can cut headcount. That's one thing. Mm -hmm. you, is there anything you can do in terms of customer prepays, other creative solutions? And then related to that, how do you think people should think about venture debt? Yeah, so customer prepays is interesting. I mean, yeah, I always try to get customers to, to pay, you know, a year in advance for a SaaS contract. If you can get them to sign a multi-year deal for say a 15 or 20% discount in the second year or third year, that's great too. Those are wonderful tricks. Headcount, I mean, what you really wanna be doing with your headcount is extracting the maximum growth from the minimum cost. So you really have to ask yourself, like, what roles do you really need right now that's going to help grow the company? Because growth is so important. You still want to grow. We're all in this business to create fast-growing startups. That doesn't change during a recession. So, but it's about extracting the most out of the least. In terms of venture debt, I'll be honest, I'm not a big fan of it. The problem is it comes with, it's very complicated. You know, like our term sheets are half a page. You ever sign a term sheet for a venture debt deal? It's like multiple pages. You know, I've been in this business a long time. I don't even understand a lot of those terms. I guarantee you founders don't understand those terms. There's a lot of strings attached to that money and no bank wants to be in the position of funding your last six months of runway. I guarantee you they've thought that through. And so the idea of like using venture debt to fund your last six months of runway, it may not be there the way you think it's going to be there. So I'd be real careful about that. I've talked to a number of founders recently who are still growing at a really nice clip. And rather than doing a layoff, what they're focusing on is just more aggressive performance reviews for the top bottom, you know, top 10% or bottom 10% of the company or things like that. How should you think about resetting culture or using this moment in time to modify how you think about the business or how your employees think about what they're doing? I mean, I think, let's face it, I think during the peak of the last few years, well, there was a lot of employee entitlement that crept into the system. It was just so hard to hire that it felt like employees could kind of get whatever they wanted. And I just think like companies need to think from first principles what's good for them. You saw like Elon just announced today that like he wants everyone to go back to the office at Tesla. And, you know, like I'm not saying that's right for every company, but like, let's think about that. If you're the founder and you like having a culture where everyone is in the office and you manage by walking around, maybe that's the right thing to do. Like, I wouldn't necessarily just automatically buy into every idea that came along in the last few years. I would like really think the first principles, what's good for your startup and what's good for the style of management that you as a founder have. And now's the time to be like much more demanding. You can afford to be a lot more demanding than you might think. Your bar can be higher than you think because the talent market just became a lot more favorable for, for companies. Have your views on remote work changed at all? Well, I think my view on, so when I was actually 
like a founder and operating a company. I really liked everyone in the office because I did manage by walking around and I got a lot of value out of serendipitous conversations. And so I was always like very skeptical of work from home and remote work. And then COVID came along and everyone did it. And so I just figured, okay, this is the new way of the world. I'm not totally sure what, what to think. I would say that I know that people working together in person in an office works and remote work might work depending on how good you are at managing it as a founder. I do know that it is much easier to hire remotely because as soon as you post a job rec, you can now hire anyone in the world. And that's what's so tempting about remote work is that it makes it so much easier to hire, but I think it does make it harder to manage. And there is a trade-off there. And you got to think about that trade-off and maybe one way to think about it is to have hubs. So maybe not everyone's in the same office. Maybe like engineering is fully decentralized because that's just like, that's just the nature of the beast now in with engineering, but maybe your customer support or sales, maybe they're in Salt Lake city, or maybe they're in Miami, or maybe they're in Denver. And so maybe you've got multiple hubs, but they're not in 500 locations working from home. You know, they've got a manager who's right there. So I think this idea of like every single person, in the company working from home, probably not the right thing. I think probably that's okay for engineering, but I would try to push the rest of your departments into either a headquarters or a hub. Yeah, I've seen a lot of early stage companies increasingly want to be together again. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there are some great teams that are remote, but I feel like some of the strongest teams I know are actually coming back together and just saying we want to be in the office and we're seven people. We don't need to hire 100 people a month. So, it, you know, we're fine just selecting in a local pool. That doesn't mean it's the companies with the most product market fit. Right. I just think it's the companies that potentially have some of those stronger groups of people, which I think is kind of an interesting early indicator. When you think about successful founders, a lot of them have the personality type of being obsessed, right? They're fanatical. The average employee, even who's dedicated, is not fanatical. And sometimes that founder obsessiveness, it gets pushed through the whole organization. And the more people they touch and either infect with enthusiasm or hold them to that high bar, the way that Elon's doing, that makes a difference. So just think about that. If you're the type of founder who is 24-7 thinking about your startup and how to succeed and your determination level is off the charts, maybe you want to be able to, you know, personally impact as many employees as possible and not just have to remember to set up a Zoom call. So a huge part of cash management that you mentioned is sort of the revenue projections and how much you believe what the next year, two years, et cetera, look like. If you have a recession, then obviously you have a big blip in terms of revenue, or at least for certain types of companies. Who do you think is going to be most affected from a revenue perspective over the next 6, 12, 18 months? So historically, when you have a recession, it's the the startup ecosystem. The startup customers are most affected, then SMB. Enterprise is least affected, but it still will be some. I mean, I don't know if you guys saw Dara's memo a few weeks ago where he came back from Wall Street and he said, guys, everything's changed. All that matters now is free cash flow. We got to sharpen our pencil and cut every cost in this building. We had a SaaS company that where Uber was a big customer. They got their contract signed like the day before that memo came out and they were going, shoot, you know, because it's going to get a lot harder to get these big deals signed. So look, this is something you need to model in if you're selling into businesses. If there's a big recession over the next year, you need to model out a scenario. I'm not saying this is what's going to happen, but you need to scenario plan for deal cycles taking longer, churn going up, like more logo churn, especially if you have exposure to the startup or SMB ecosystem. Just more companies are going to go out of business. So you should just be prepared for that. Model it out. The one and, the- then, and then if you have, if you're B2C, if you have consumer exposure, you really have to pay attention to that because I would say that the companies that get hit the hardest and first in a recession are B2C companies. So, you know, like Affirm right now, Affirm is a fantastic company. Max Lefton's a fantastic founder. I was a seed investor in the company. That company, that stock's like off like 80, 90%. Why? Because they're buy now, pay later for consumers. And now the market's starting to price in a recession and they're wondering about consumer credit worthiness. And so that company has been hammered. It's a great company, but so you've got to think about like, will I be impacted by a downturn? Now, look, every startup should figure out how to grow through a downturn because the market is so big. Your addressable market is so big that even if like the world's economy shrinks by 2%, you're such a small sliver of it compared to the addressable market that you should still figure out a way to grow during this downturn. The VCs will not accept as an excuse, oh, we didn't grow because of the downturn. But so you gotta be thinking about how do I still grow? But there will be an impact. 
I should. So one of the questions that I commonly get is how to think about the trade-off between burn and growth, because often those things are related. And you, you have this framework of burn multiple versus growth rate. But if you can grow 5x versus 3x, how should you think about the burn that you're willing to undertake, even if your burn multiple goes way up? So in, in a bull market, all VCs care about is growth. And they would say, go for the 5x because the 5x will get you a unicorn valuation. You know? But in a bear market or downturn like this, VCs are going to not just be looking for growth. They're going to be asking about the efficiency of growth. How much did that growth cost you? What was the CAC pay payback? And how much money did you burn to get that growth? So this is why you know, I defined this burn multiple metric two years ago. It just asks very simply, in a given quarter or year, whatever your period is, how much did you burn to get that new, that new ARR? And what I say is that if you can burn to get a, a multiple, it's, you divide the amount of burn divided by the net new ARR, and it's basically your burn per unit of growth. And if your burn is multiple is over two, so for example, you spent 10 million to grow 5 million, if it's that, that, that sort of just passes. But if you're spending 20 million to grow 5 million, VCs are not going to be impressed by that. You know, and if you can spend 5 million to grow 5 million, VCs will be impressed by that. So you have to, you, you have to look at efficiency of growth now. So one thing that I feel hasn't really happened very much over the last two, three years is companies exiting. There is very little M&A, and it felt like that was driven by the ability for founders to take out secondary, and part of it was just the environment. There's always a financing round available. Over the last month, I've probably gotten three or four calls of people starting to think about selling. If you were to sell your company, you're in an early stage seed, Series A, something like that, should you start thinking about selling now? Should you wait six months? Like, Under what conditions do you think people should sell? And do you think the M&A market will shift a lot as more and more companies split the market in six or 12 months? Well... If you're not default investable, you probably should start thinking about whether there is an M&A opportunity in your future, because if you can't fundraise, then, you know, that's, you need to start cultivating those options. The hard part is that, and, and sometimes you can do that. Sometimes there's like a known expression of interest from some larger company, and maybe there are things you could do to cultivate it. However, most companies are bought, not sold, meaning that's hard to convince an acquirer to want you. Acquisitions usually happen because it's obvious for some reason to the acquirer that you would be strategically in their interest. And I mean, obviously, if they reach out to you in these circumstances, you probably want to return that phone call, you know, but, you know, do I think there'll be more M&A? I, I, maybe, but the thing to remember is that those acquirers stocks are down too. And so they're not like thrilled about the idea of massive dilution on their part. So I think when the market finally stabilizes at new price levels, we could start seeing some pickup in M&A activity, but it's not guaranteed. And what's your prediction in terms of when the market stabilizes? Look, I think it's possible that the market bottomed out last week. And, and the reason I say that is because we got the first good inflation print in about a year. And it, it's not like inflation was good. It was merely lower than last month. So we had the first month over month decrease in inflation last, last month. So there is this lapping effect where inflation is measured on a year-over-year -year basis. And so as you come up against a higher inflation number last year, it's the, the inflation rate, it's not like price levels go down, but just the inflation rate goes down because it's not in an inflationary spiral. So for example, the inflation rate around this time last year was like in the 4 to 5% range. It was 8% by the end of the year. So if price levels just stay the same, if they're at like whatever, 5% now, it's going to go down just because you're measuring over a much higher end of your comp. So, you know, it's possible that things have bottomed out, but here's the thing, we don't know because the war in Ukraine is still going on and that's affecting prices. There are supply chain issues in China going on. And most of all, this is the scariest thing. The Fed has just announced quantitative tightening, which they just began in June, meaning that instead of pushing money into the economy, they're sucking it out. And they're saying they're going to suck something like over $7 trillion out of the economy by the end of 2023, so over the next year and a half. I don't think we've ever seen that before. I have no idea what that's going to do to the economy. Nothing good, I can promise you. I mean, I think it's going to be highly recessionary. So we just don't know. I don't think we know. And, and this is why you should be taking prudent steps now. Because look, if, 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 if you, let's say, react now really strongly, 
and the environment turns out to be a lot better. Let's say that everything bottomed out last week and things get better. Great. You can always hire back. I promise you, you'll be able to hire back. But if you don't cut enough now and then things actually get worse, then you've lost a lot of time. So there's an asymmetry of risk and you want to make sure that like you avoid the risk that can kill you, not the risk that's just sort of mildly unpleasant. And I guess the last question for me, and then we can open up to the audience is we've talked a lot about the defense side of startups, thinking about cash planning and other things like that. There are some companies that are doing incredibly well in this environment, at least right now, they may be profitable or close to it or growing at a very good clip or hitting the metrics that you mentioned. What is the best offensive plan right now? Listen, I mean, if you can efficiently grow, you've got a burn multiple of one-ish, great, lean into that. You know, the, the burn multiple metric doesn't say you should necessarily burn less. It just says that you want to make sure that for every unit of burn, you're getting a unit of growth. So if you can keep growing efficiently, lean into it. Because I, I believe that VCs will fund that growth. Like, you know, if you're default investable, like take this opportunity to win. I mean, there may be opportunities for you to grow faster while competitors are pulling back. There may be opportunities for you to acquire smaller companies that have some component that you're missing. One of our portfolio companies just did that, and I think it's going to work out fantastically. So, you know, if you're well-funded because you happen to raise last year, if you're growing nicely, if your business doesn't seem to be impacted at all by the downturn, great, take advantage of that. Like, we're here, we're in it to win it, right? We're not here to avoid just bad outcomes. Be prudent, but, you know, if you have the opportunity to accelerate, great. Okay, great. So we'll have five minutes of questions from the audience and probably two to three questions. And then if you can say the question, I'll just repeat it for the live stream, so. You share what what is look so the question is basically what do the next six, twelve, eighteen months look like right. from a tangible perspective? Yeah. Okay. So I can I can kind of give you a story for how each of those scenarios could take place. So six month scenario. I don't personally believe this, but here's how the story would go. Inflation is coming down because of the lapping effect I mentioned. By the end of the year, by December, we're at a 3% inflation rate. There's been some softening of demand in the economy, but because we started at all-time low unemployment, things are still pretty good. The war in Ukraine gets resolved. There's a peace deal. And the supply chain issues that we saw during COVID basically start to you know, have ameliorated. And the Fed basically says, okay, $7 trillion of quantitative tightening. Maybe that was too aggressive. We're going to do that over a five-year time frame, not the next year and a half. All those things happening is like, let the good times roll by January. However, it's still not going to be 100 times ARR. I just want to be clear, okay? But things will feel pretty normal by then. It might be 30 to 40 times ARR, okay? That's, that's scenario A. Scenario B would be that what it looks like right now, which is the Fed imposing austerity in an aggressive way at the same time that we're seeing an economic slowdown produces a recession in the next six to eight months and other shoes start to drop like consumer confidence, which has already dropped massively. If you look at consumer confidence of last month, the consumer stopped spending, the cost of home loans goes way up because interest rates are higher, the housing market basically crashes. So we basically go into recession. That's what I think is gonna happen, okay? And you should expect that is like an 18-month process to basically get through those, just because historically, that's what recessions look like. I think it's about eight, 18 months to go from peak to trough to peak again, something like that. Nuclear winter is, that's like a two to three-year problem. That's worse than recession. I don't, I don't see that happening right now. That would require more things to happen that are a little bit unforeseeable right now. I would have to tell you certain kinds of horror stories, you know, a crash in the housing market, a la 2006, you know, systemic risk in the bank. And so basically things get flushed out because of the recession. So we go into recession first, and then we realize that there's all sorts of institutions that have bad debt, like toxic debt, toxic assets. And now there's systemic risk. Maybe there's a nuclear use related to the Ukrainian war. I mean, stuff like that has to happen, right? So I'm not saying that's going to happen either. I think probably the middle case, but th those would be like kind of the, the spectrum of possibilities. Okay, and then last question.
hard to So the, the question was, assuming that, how do you think about sector by sector impact of all this stuff? Web3, hard tech, other areas. So I think that when it comes to like spaces, the hot spaces that, you know, VCs invest in, the hotter they are, the harder they fall. What I mean by that is like take Web3, for example. Okay. So when times are really frothy, VCs throw out the normal rules and they invest, they can invest in a company with no revenue, no customers, maybe not even a product yet. And they'll do it at some crazy valuation because the space is hot. It's a hot space syndrome. Well, then what happens is the tide goes back out and, you know, we're in a downturn and now all of a sudden VCs remember, wait a second, I'm supposed to like look at fundamentals. Well, how many customers do you have? How much revenue do you have? Oh, zero? You know, I don't think your company's worth anything, you know? So the hotter they are, the harder they fall. So that's the thing to be careful of is the return of business fundamentals. And it's really about business fundamentals. This is why, you know, if you've been reading my blog, Substack, whatever, for the last couple of years, we've published like very clearly, here are the metrics you need as a SaaS company. And I think if you're a SaaS company, for example, and you've paid attention to those business fundamentals, you're going to be in pretty good shape because you already knew you needed ARR, right? And, you know, maybe your valuation got ahead of itself. Maybe a VC stepped up and paid 100 times ARR, 200 times ARR. It may be okay because, look, if you can just triple year over year for two years, you're fine, right? So, so I would say that the spaces that were hot, were, that got away from business fundamentals, are going to see the biggest correction. And that might include crypto, for example. And the spaces that were always fundamentals-based, SaaS, marketplace, and so on, they should be real, more okay. And one thing on crypto I think is interesting is there's the nuance of capital pools because you have a different set of funders, at least for a subset of rounds, and that may distort things for a while as crypto slides. So it may be a delayed effect, which I think is kind of interesting. Anyhow, huge thanks to David for making the time today.